from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Can you hear me now? Good. Can you hear me now? Good. If that phrase sounds familiar... Can you hear me now? Good. Can you hear me now? Good. Verizon Wireless. We never stop working for you. The face you're imagining right now belongs to Paul Marcarelli. He first uttered, Can You Hear Me Now?, as the test man back in 2001. And for about a decade, he was the literal face of the Verizon brand. And that face of a brand job is exactly what we'll be exploring today. We'll also get to know Stephanie Courtney, also known as Flo from Progressive, who she's been playing since 2008. But back to Paul Marcarelli. I asked him how he got started as the nameless Can You Hear Me Now guy. Well, it's a tough one. I mean, in some ways, I think you have to start the story with once upon a time there was television, you know, because it kind of doesn't really exist in the same, well, it definitely doesn't exist in the same form or with the same level of importance or you know, cultural and pop cultural reach that it used to. But there was a time when uh, people watch TV and an actor like me who was struggling to make ends meet in the city doing, you know, downtown nonprofit theater could, you know, make a decent living in television commercials. So throughout the 90s or the later part of the 90s, I started having some success with that. And then not too long after 9-11, which really sort of put an end to uh, auditions for a while and er, 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 everything sort of ground to a halt in the city, as you recall. And then we just started getting back to work and I had two auditions. One of them was for uh, Staples, I remember this. (laughs) And one of them was for Verizon. And usually the way it works is, you know, you work a day and then it pays enough money that or it did pay enough money that if you did a few of those in a year, you could really make enough of a living to get by in New York. And so that's really what I was hoping for. And as it turned out, it wasn't just one day. Their plan was that it would be a big campaign. And I was the, apparently they had, they were test marketing a couple of people that they were already interested in. They'd already seen about 1500 people in I think three or four different cities yeah. And then I was the, they were like, you know what, let's have one more day in New York of casting. And apparently I was the last appointment on that last day. And for whatever reason, there were definitely people with better abs and people who were taller and better looking and um, smarter and I'm sure better educated and had Juilliard degrees <laughs> and, and all this stuff. But I, for whatever reason, I was the one person that met all the criteria on the checklist. The line, of course, that we all remember, and we'll talk about some more is, can you hear me now? Were, were there any other lines? No, I think that that was it in the audition. I remember walking around with like um, a whiteboard eraser, just sort of going back and forth and thinking, you know what? Try not to do too much. <laughs> just try not to do so much. Ask the question, wait for the answer, and then say good. You know, and and that's kind of all I really did. And um um, maybe the one time in my life I realized I, w- I was enough <laughs> without doing too much. <laughs> and uh, so for whatever reason, I was I was the, the guy. And then, you know, within a couple of days, my my agent called 
and was like, yeah, it's looking like it's going to be two weeks. And I was so excited because I was in a play that closed and was supposed to move to the Soho Playhouse. And then 9-11 happened and that Soho Playhouse, I think, was below the cordoned off area. And I was thinking if if, if, if we're going to reboot a career here, maybe we can, you know, stage it someplace else in two weeks. I could pay to do the play someplace else. And I got a call maybe an hour later and he's like, okay, it's not going to be two weeks. It's going to be five years. Were, were you prepared for the possibility this would be five years? Was this on the table? Oh, of course not. Of course not. And then um, he told me the money they were offering and he's like, but that's a low ball. And, you know, the next thing I know, I like, yeah, I mean, I had a job. And then within a week, I was walking through the swamps of New Orleans, like outside of New Orleans and shooting commercials. And and it had started and then it kept going. What did you think was going to happen? Were you like, oh, this is going to be cool. People probably recognize me. I'll make good money. By the way, can you say more or less what kind of money we're talking about for a five-year contract with Verizon? I mean, it's bigger than a bread box. You know, listen, I mean, the kind of money, they're, they're, it's not banker money. Let's put it that way. It's not hedge fund money. And it's not even, you know, TV actor money. But it's, but, but well, no. I mean, it's, it's, I'm 52 and I'm retired. Semi. I can be. And that's because of 20 years of doing this. But we're going to get, you know, if I make it to 88, the money will be gone. That's what I've been told. <laughs> so what did you think this was going to be like compared to what you know it ended up being like? I thought, like all things, um, it won't last. I mean, I, I just thought it would go away. I, I, I didn't expect it to keep going. I really didn't. And then I wanted to keep it. So, right. So then every year they had an option to sort of like pick up an option, pick up an option. And, you know, I remember it, it came to a point where every time the option would renew, I'd have one day where I felt, okay. And then within 24 hours, I was like, I wonder if next year they're going to renew because I wanted the money also. And I'm just realizing this in therapy right now. 22 years later, that I also thought, well, I have a year where I won't have to deal with other stuff. You know, there's a whole year where this is going to be my priority. I'm going to be on the road for 200 days a year and I'll, I'll deal with that other stuff down the road. And uh, then the pandemic happened and I suddenly had to deal with it all. When you would be on the road, I picture you're taping, can you hear me now, in different locations. Was that it? What, what else were you doing? Yeah, that was it. I mean, I was shooting commercials. So we shot probably, I would guess, somewhere between 50 and 70 commercials a year. So if you figure on either end of that is a travel day, you shoot for a day or two, or right there is, you know, maybe 150 days. And then there would be maybe like 50 appearances of one kind or another, be it at a corporate call center or um, at a football game or some other kind of sporting event or what have you. So it ended up being like an academic year, but spread out throughout the year. And I never kind of knew. I was sort of on call, basically. And I remember I would have to give a certain amount of notice for a day off. So it kind of ruled out even doing like a day on law and order, like that kind of thing. Because the way that would work, I remember at the time was that you would have to commit for the two week period in which that episode was shooting or the 10 day period in which that episode was shooting, if you got called back. 
And I could never do that because, you know, they were going to start shooting that Monday and my contract stipulated that I would have to give more notice than that. And so then there, there came a point where I was like, well, this is my full-time job. This is what I'm going to commit my energy to and, until it's over. And I kept thinking it was going to end and it just, you know, kind of never did. Now, when you were traveling, you're doing these appearances, you're just going to a restaurant or buying groceries, you would inevitably hear it. Yeah. Someone would recognize you and say, hey, can you hear me now? And I just would like to hear how you handled that, the evolution of how you handled that and how that felt. I was always uncomfortable with the attention. And then at the same time, it was like the only reason you do this kind of job is because there's some twisted part of your brain, like deep down where it's like, you know, somebody noticed me or whatever. And so I think it tapped into that too. But I also knew that like, like for instance, when I was, if I was in a play downtown, no, you'd never play. I mean, in the theater that I did, I mean, you, there were maybe 50 or to hundred people in an audience that's it ever. And if someone spotted you on the subway and happened to see you in that play, it was thrilling. And then, of course, there was an opportunity to talk about something thereafter, the writing of the play or um, that other actor that played that part, or yeah, that was really scary, or oh my God, you were there the night the lights went out, or whatever the thing is. But with a commercial in which you really say six words, there's there's no place to go with the conversation beyond um, the person saying, I, I spotted you, you know, that said, I never dismissed anyone. I always felt as though it would be deeply humiliating not to acknowledge someone, you know, it would be deeply humiliating for the other person. And also it, there was nothing, it was mostly well-intended and I, act, I responded accordingly. I, I hope most of the time. Was there ever a concern that casting directors didn't want the can you hear me now guy in their project because that's all people would think when they saw you. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's a few things. One of those things is being a gay actor in the 90s and early 2000s. That's something that we should talk about. I would also like to say if I can set up a little time frame for you. So imagine I started doing commercials in the 90s. And when I got this job, it was like 2001. And I think this is an important cultural or pop cultural moment happened when Ellen DeGeneres gets her talk show in 2004. She loses her job in the 90s and doesn't get in is basically unemployable in 2000 until 2004. And I think there was part of me that thought I should be grateful to have a job because I'm this like gay dude with a steady gig. And I honestly couldn't think of anyone else who had one. So there was part of me, I was just like, just don't rock the boat. Be happy you have this. And I was lucky because in some ways, I think, I would like to think that it wouldn't have mattered in the casting process. Um, if I had some public persona that was also out, but I didn't have a public persona. I was a nobody. And the agreement was that I didn't do press which is something that, I mean, that's what actors trade in. That's how they build their profile is going out and promoting whatever they're working on. But I was 
in a promotion. So I, there, there was nothing for me to go and talk about, like on a talk show or, you know, I didn't have Architectural Digest come and look at my house and I did none of those things happened. And so I was not building a profile. And so I wasn't technically speaking out. So I do think that was another little element of it. I was lucky to have a job. And when you went from Verizon to Sprint, when that shift happened, you met with Sprint and you were like, if I can't be an out gay dude who's married to another dude, this isn't going to work. How did they respond? We we parted ways totally amicably. I was, you know, we were moving on to different things and um, there was no bitterness at all. But, you know, one of the discussions in leaving that job, certainly among my representation, was, well, you, you, you're not going to hold on. I mean, what if another, what if Sprint calls? And I guess for whatever reason, they just didn't think it was necessary to hang on to me. And, you know, so I, when Sprint did reach out a year later, you know, I entertained the idea. I was like, this, this could be, I could see how it could be cool if they did it in sort of meta way. Like, you know, I'm an actor, but, you know, and I played this guy that said this one thing, but I'm also, you know, a person and, and this makes more sense. And maybe it will for you too. I think it will. And so I was like, oh, okay. I kind of, I kind of like it. But yes, that was a consideration. I was I was no longer in a place in my life where I wanted to, in any way, shape, or form, either prevaricate about my sexuality or um, have to use gender non-specific terms when referencing my spouse or whatever the thing happened to be. I just didn't want it to be a consideration, and so. When I when I asked them that, I remember them the the people in marketing and um, at Sprint were like, "We love everything about you." And I I was I was shocked. I was shocked to hear that. I can't imagine it was that um, positive with all of their customer base. <laughs> but um, nevertheless, I think there was an authenticity and just calling it like it was that was appealing to them at that point in their um, marketing strategy. And they, if they were going to use my name, they're going to use everything about me. And they did. They put my husband in a commercial. How'd that feel? It was really fun. It was really fun. I, Of course, I wished it had been more overt I mean, because it was a little bit coded. It was like my husband and I were, well, I was shopping for a Christmas tree with another guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it, it, not, not a lot of roommate dudes, bros buying Christmas trees together. But of course, every gay person who saw it knew exactly what it was. I mean, um, we're used to picking up those, you know, coded messages. So, but nevertheless, I thought that was amazing and super, it was, a, it was ballsy. It was a cool risk to take. And I was proud of it, really proud of it. That was Paul Marcarelli, Verizon's Can You Hear Me Now guy. He later appeared as himself and ads for Sprint, which is now T-Mobile. When we get back, Paul's relationship to creativity beyond commercials. I felt as though I had to somehow kind of legitimize myself. Like I felt like this need to sort of like prove that there was more there, you know, or, and I don't just don't care about that anymore. I really don't. And it's also, it turns out, it's just not a very good motivator. And what's it like for Stephanie Courtney to develop the role of flow from Progressive? And then they put the makeup on and more, 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 and then stop. And then I caught my reflection. I was like, we have ourselves like a big character here. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting people who are the faces of brands. Later you'll find out what it's like being flow from progressive with actress and comedian Stephanie Courtney. But right now we're talking with Paul Marcarelli. You may remember him as Verizon's Can You Hear Me Now guy. He then went to Sprint, which is now T-Mobile. But he is more than the face of cell phone brands. He co-founded the Table 10 Films production company. He co-wrote the 2011 film The Green. He also wrote and produced the award-winning feature film Clutter, starring Carol Kane and Natasha Lyonne. Still... It's this commercial stuff he's best known for. And I wanted to know if, after all this time, there was anything he would have done differently in his career. Yeah, um, I I wouldn't have taken any of it personally. And I found myself doing that more often than I would have liked. And any time I behaved in a way that I regretted, it was because I was taking things too personally. Can you give me an example? Well, you know how reality TV works. The reason it works is because they're in this bell jar and there's this there's this light on someone who's not used to having all of this attention on them. And I mean, literal light on them. And then all of these eyes watching them, both at home and on set, say there's 50 to 100 people on set, everyone's watching you. There was a point in my career, I mean, in the Verizon days when they had this sort of like network of people working behind me, there were 300 people standing behind me. And I remember finding it all very unnerving. And when I thought about it, I was like, well, the only time in the wild that all eyes are on you is when you are the leader or lunch. And I think there's something deep in the human psyche. It's where the ego, fight or flight ends and ego begins or something. And I think, you know, it's why some actors act out to put people in their place. Um, Because they're tricked into thinking they're in charge. And the light does that. And it almost does it in spite of your best intentions. Some people are not all well-intended, but even the most well-intended among us, I think, can be tricked pretty easily. And then what happens, and I think you can divide this almost completely down gender lines, at least in my experience, um, when all of that attention is on a woman in my business, what I tended to see was insecurities popped up about appearance, about agency. I mean, all of that stuff would happen. You would just see it all play out. And then the guys would be like putting on a two-step. You know what I mean? Like it was just, and then gay guys like me landed somewhere in the middle. We were just like happy to be employed. I mean, it was, you could almost just see it going on. 
so if I'm looking back, what I would do differently, I would not let myself get tricked by the light. So times when I either took a script too seriously and was like fighting for quality in a commercial, I'm mean, really, what, you're, come on, just do the thing. Or, you know, if I thought I had been, you know, I hadn't been, my feelings hadn't been considered or what was convenient for me or, you know, and the reality is people bent over backwards to make sure the first person on the call sheet was well taken care of. But there were times when it was, oh, that's not enough, you know, and I I just wouldn't take that seriously anymore. I mean, I, I, don't, I really don't think I would. And I could say in large part, the second time around, you know, when Sprint came around, there was a lot less of that. There was a lot less I cared about. And it, and if you did hear me um, speak up, it was because I thought I had something to contribute. So what is your life like now? Well, it's different. I mean, there was, you know, obviously the great pause happened. And, you know, I've always had a house in Connecticut, um, but I settled here full time in about 2017 and spent maybe a couple months in the winter in our place in Savannah. But there was no, no, no more New York presence unless I was there for work. And I guess, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I shot commercials in my apartment for like, I mean, in my bedroom for like six months. And then that job ended too. And so it was sort of like, I started this process of figuring out what I want the rest of, you know, this this time in my life to look like. And I still, I on if I'm being honest, I still don't know. I, I have no idea. I just kind of got back on the boards at my agency. So, you know, I've had a couple of auditions for voice stuff, mostly stuff that I can do from home. And that and that is how the work is now. I mean, most of it, you know, you every everything you're auditioning for, 90% of it is from home. So I can be in rural Connecticut, which is incredible. And then I guess if I get work, I mean, some of the stuff you can do from home and some of it you have to go into the city or LA for, and that would be great if that happens. I wonder when, you know, hopefully you have a long career in front of you. You've had these 20 years in this one niche. But during that time, you also, you know, produced award-winning films, Clutter won Best Feature at Harlem International Film Festival. You've done other work. And so when it comes to being... I want to say when it comes to being known for your other work, but I get the feeling that it's not for you. And correct me if I'm wrong. It's not that you want to be known for other work. It's that you want to do work that's meaningful for you. And is that where you're at right now to aim towards that? Yeah. I mean, it's complicated because I do think that when I was producing films, it was at a time when I felt as though I had to somehow kind of legitimize myself. Like I felt like this need to sort of like prove that there was more there, you know, or, and I don't just don't care about that anymore. I really do. And it's also, it turns out it's just not a very good motivator because it's a, it's a, for one thing, it's a moving target. And, you know, with that as the aim, you're utterly results oriented. And so you're, you're just bound to be disappointed by the work. And if I'm going to do that again, invest my own time and money and energy into something like, yeah, it better be something that's deeply meaningful and that can hold my interest for the amount of time it takes to live with it. And I honestly just don't know what that is right now. I really don't. And sometimes that really troubles me. And <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, oh, I've got my garden to keep me busy and that's good enough. You and me both. If nothing else, get your hands dirty. Yeah. And, you know, I earned a retirement in this job, which is incredible. You know, I mean, 
it is you know, basically union work. And I'm vested now in my retirement, which I can start collecting in a couple of years. And so I'm, you know, I, I if if I don't figure it out, I'm retired and I'll try to find meaning in that. And if I do figure out what I'm supposed to be doing next, or if another adventure, you know, hits me in the side of the head, like these other ones, then great. Well, Paul Marcarelli, thank you so much for talking with me. I loved this conversation. I'm grateful for you. Thank you so much for thinking of me. And I feel so honored and flattered that you wanted me to be part of this. So thank you very much. In early 2008, the world met Flo, the face of the insurance company, Progressive. Welcome to Progressive.com. Did you find your policy okay? I did. Saved over $350. We have a savings of $350. A savings of $350. The woman behind the hair and makeup and perkiness? That's actress and comedian Stephanie Courtney. She's been in other stuff. Films like For Your Consideration, The Brother Solomon, and Blades of Glory, and TV shows like House, Two Broke Girls, and Mad Men. But she will likely be known as the upbeat insurance fanatic flow for the rest of time. I asked her to take me back to right before that audition. What was going on in her life? I was so broke. I was so broke. I was broke. Uh, This was probably my car. I had a car that in 2003 and four, like would not go in reverse. Like the transmission just kept breaking. And my parents were like, stop calling us for help with this. This is beyond. And like, we have to retire at some point. Stop it. And so I was like, well, I can do this as long as I don't go in reverse. And so I would just like go to where I was like, I was like waitressing, not, I, I'm not even good enough. I was a terrible waitress, but I was working the counter at a restaurant and um, I would just go and I would like scoot into a, you know, parallel parking spot that had a way out, you know what I mean? A way in and a way out. And I lived that way for like three months, which is so, um, you know, when I booked flow, that was, I was after Mad Men actually. And um, it was crazy for me. That was like, What's happening, you know? When you did the audition for Progressive, did you have any spidey sense that was going off during this audition that maybe gave you a clue as to the powder keg you were stepping into? Not really. I do remember, like, there were things about it that I really liked at the beginning of it. Um, You know, the first thing, it was like, oh, this is like a big box store employee. So you've got your trunk with your, like, my lab coat, my business lady blazer, and my polo shirt. So, like, I threw on my polo shirt, and and then the, the direction was, this lady is so positive, it's over-the-top positive. And I was like, great. And so I just <laughs> played my mom when she'd answer the phone. Like, she could be like, you guys are driving me crazy. And I'm like, what are you, hello? Yes. Oh, my God. You know, it's like that is sort of the inspiration where it's just like, you know, everything's wonderful. By the way, I'm making the face I'm making because I've been telling that same story about my mom, but without having gotten an incredibly lucrative commercial acting (laughs) career. Same mother. We have the same mother. You got to do that. You got to get the lucrative commercial. (laughs) Um, No, it's so funny. Mom on the on the wall phone with the coiled cord. You know, it was just like, wow, where's this lady? Where did this lady come from? 
So when you got the job, I'm sure, of course, you were stoked because what a cool gig, right? When did you realize this was going to be in your obituary? <laughs> and that obituary is in like Parade magazine. Um, <laughs> that's, that's where it's going to be. But that's OK. It'll be there. Um, it was basically I knew that they had shot three others in this fake, you know, big box store. And I kind of looked a little like heaven or whatever. And I was like, well, that's, and, and the first thing I noticed, I'm like, oh, this is, this is a real stamp. Like they know what they are. They know what they want. You know, you can just sort of tell it's not wishy-washy. They had a, a vision. And then when I got my makeup and my hair done, you know, I, they were just saying, keep going, keep going, keep going, stop. And then they had cut bangs. You know, I, I had this, I just couldn't even afford a haircut. My hair was like, I always say like, it's like a Gerard Depardieu, like, shag and so they were like we're cutting bangs i'm like do it just do it do anything and then they put the makeup on and more and more and more and then stop and then i caught my reflection i was like and that was sort of i was like i don't know this lady i don't know her like who is this like we're and we're gonna find out in a second we're gonna go out there and find out but i knew like if they liked what i did in the audition and i look like this like we have ourselves like a big character here and then at the end, they had a couple of actors come and play the customers. So then I was like, we've got two or three now because we did the same commercial with two different endings. And I'm like, I think we've got like two or three commercials. And then they said, would you do the voiceover for the other three? So they brought out this old timey microphone from like, you know, the 30s or whatever. And then I was making announcements into it that the customers would listen to and hear or whatever. I'm like, I think I just did six commercials. And then um, they started airing in January. And then I think by March, it was like, let's do this year by year, where I was like, okay, that's good. That's good. I don't know. But the Halloween costumes is the biggest gift and the biggest, it's the best. Like when you see in a, in a Halloween store, you. Like, yeah, or that. And also like people sending me their kids or whatever, or like kids dressed up in that. Nothing will ever, like, I had no idea that would be part of this. And that is the bestest thing in the world. Okay, so in some ways, this is the coolest thing that could ever happen to you, full stop. <laughs> Little tiny Stephanie would be like, mind blown. I won every single lottery there is. And on the other hand, you are wholly identified with this one thing. And it's a car insurance company. And I wonder what that feels like, too. Well, okay. So when I auditioned for Flow, I had already been in LA for 10 years auditioning and working. And I, before that, six years, was it six years? Yeah, six years in New York. Um, and I was doing stand-up and I was doing the groundlings. Um, and so I had what I felt were people on my side. You know what I mean? I had casting directors that liked me. And another thing was the character was so different than what I kind of look like in real life. As you see this corn husk on the Zoom lens talking to you, it takes a lot of uh, spackle to turn me into flow. So, and hairspray. And um, so I am able to audition and look different. And I have friends who would love to work with me, even if, you know, you're right, even if I've sort of burned out certain opportunities because I'm associated with a commercial character. But I, I made a deal with myself because I got this when I was like what, 37, 38. You know what I mean? And I'm like, just make peace with that. Um, there's so much good about this. And 
I'm, I'm so lucky. And yes, that is part of it where it's like, okay, but I think it's up to me to then create my own stuff. So it's been 16 years that you've been shooting these commercials. I've been in public radio for 17 years. <gasps> and congratulations. Certainly, thank you. And certainly it never gets old. It's always fresh and new, especially with this show. But um, has any of it, I don't know, has the shine dulled any in terms of just the process of the work, of the character, of all of it? I would say if it didn't change, maybe that would have been the case. The first three years, we had a different production team. We had a different director. And I always say the director that I had then, his name is Jeffrey Fleissig, is wonderful. And the director that I've had for the past 11 years, Brendan Gibbons, who's wonderful, had very different jobs. Um, the first three years where Jeffrey was the director, it was like Groundhog's Day. We, we had to kind of repeat the same commercial every time we're in the store. You know what I mean? And they, I think, at Progressive, they were kind of like, well, she lives in the store. She exists in the store. So let's keep her there. And um, our job was then to figure out who is she? How far can we go? How can she be mean? Nope. Can she be uh, have a big ego about herself? Yes, we can do that. We can, you know, stuff like that. Like it was discovering the, the parameters. Then they decided to take her out into the world and try that. And that and then, you know, that was a new production team. They were just ready for a change. And that was um, so I say Jeffrey had Groundhog's Day and then Brendan's never had the same day twice. We have, this is a, a romantic movie. This is, uh, I'm doing a family spot where it's like the, the clumps sitting around a table. Um, you know, now we're in an 80s kind of situation. You know, so the writers are having so much fun because now they get to just do whatever they want. And so because of that, it's always fun for me to see what they've written. And like, it's, you know, it was very improv heavy at the, at the beginning just to find the ending, just to find who this person is. And now it's seriously, it's all written there. It's always fun to go to work. I love it. One thing that I'm curious about is, like, I love being recognized, <laughs> especially because no one really knows my face unless they look for it. Yeah. You know, I might get recognized by, by, by my voice. But as you know, like, when I'm, if I'm at a party or I'm at the supermarket, I'm a little louder, so maybe people don't, people don't recognize it. But I love getting recognized. I love getting recognized and being associated with my my work, this this work. And you had mentioned earlier about how cool it was when, you know, people would send you pictures of their kids dressed up as you. Were there any moments where you were like, I'm not Flo? I mean, I know I am Flo, but can, I, can, we, not, can we not do this? Some interactions, perhaps? The deal is I basically have another face on my face made of makeup at work. You know what I mean? So when I like bring it down, I can sort of go by unrecognized. Now, where I do get recognized is like L.A. Because if you think someone is someone here, they probably are. You know what I mean? So I get busted for my like TJ Maxx addiction. And stuff. they're like, oh, my God, you're back. And you're you're buying more discount, whatever. Off-brand, <laughs> imperfect. I just can't help it. But anyway, other than that, if I'm traveling around and I look like myself, no, not really. And my friend Jim, who plays Jamie, um, he gets recognized a lot more because he really does look like himself, you know? So he'll be on the subway in New York or something and someone will be like, I knew you. <laughs> so does anybody ever see you and go, like outside of LA and, and go, you look 
like someone I've seen, then that's a decision point for you. Yes. Yes. You either say yes or no. Um, one time my mother, I think we we're at the gap and this was early on early days. And the lady behind the counter was like, you look familiar. And I know enough to just let it go just to be like, yeah, maybe, maybe we went to college or something. And she was just like, she plays flow. And you can see the lady sort of looking at me like, Oh, right. And then just finish the transaction. I'm like, protect yourself from that reaction at all costs. Like, it's just, I can never assume it's going to be. Most people are lovely and polite and it's great. And, and some people I'm like, I won't even set myself up. That was Stephanie Courtney, also known as Flo from Progressive. She's talking with us for our show about what it's like being the face of a brand. After the break. I would have a nightmare in the early days that I'd be in an airport or something, I'd look at a TV and there would be like a dirty sock puppet and it would say progressive over it. Like I'd been replaced by a very filthy sock puppet. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. Stephanie Courtney. Yes. Stephanie Courtney. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking to people whose faces are synonymous with brands. Right now we're getting to know Stephanie Courtney. You know her as Flo from Progressive Insurance. That's a job she's held since 2008. Let's get back to our conversation. How much are you like Flo? That's a great question. Um, I notice as I get older and the campaign gets older, that flow gets to be a little more frustrated or cranky with her team and especially Jamie. And <laughs> I love that. I love that, you know, she's risen in the ranks, but I kind of, you know, I get a lot of notes sometimes where it's like, don't reference death. Like, don't like, like, no, no one wants to hear about your age jokes. Just, you know, this is, keep it up. Yeah, flow is sort of the engine, like whatever keeps her up and going is sort of the engine that got me through like the broke years where it's just like, put that smile on it, go and tap dance, tap dance hard, tap dance for that job. Um, and I think that's what flow has. But I can say after I play, especially the early days when I would be flow for whatever, 10 hours, I needed to get a driver to bring me home because I was like, you don't want me driving on the freeways after I've just been in the bright lights and playing this character with my eyebrows up, like in big eyes and a big smile. It's really exhausting. 
Did the driver have progressive? <laughs> oh, it doesn't everyone. <laughs> this comment brought to you by progressive. <laughs> Sorry. Cut that out. <laughs> Flow has been such a fixture in our popular culture for so long. What do you think explains her, your staying power? There's a couple of things. I think she's not perfect. And I think that is everything because there are lots of commercials with a model who, you know, and they work, they're great, you know, and, um, but Flo's not, but she thinks she's a superstar. Her perfection comes in, is her hair and her lipstick perfect? Other than that, or, you know, is her apron all pressed? Other than that, she can be insane. Uh, but as, but in her eyes, she's perfect and got it all locked down. You know, and on the days, too, where I'm tired or whatever, it's in this long hour and I've uh, long hours and I've got this huge line and I have to get it. And I got to be honest, at this point, there's 16 years worth of insurance lines in my head. So if I have a big thing to say, 50, you know, other commercials are popping out of my mouth and I'm just like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, but I just to myself, I'm like, just double down, just double down and commit to this, commit to the line. And I think Flo's committed to her job. And maybe, I don't know, you tell me why, why? I think you nailed it with the whole idea of her having like, at least I've got this figured out, this figured out, and this figured out. I've got some pillars. The rest is all chaos. And I think that that's what we see in ourselves. Like I know there, I, I'm 42. I've been through some things. I'm so proud of some of the ways in which I've grown. And if I can have those pillars, which I do, then I am allowed the grace of the chaos in between. Hey, that's a great way to put it. Yes. I should work in advertising. You should do it. Oh my God, you got something, kid. Um, yes, yes, yes. I think, uh, and also she does kind of eat it in some of the commercials too. She kind of, you know what I mean? She'll, she'll has, she has to kind of like smile through some real awkwardness. And like her with her family, uh, which was just a gift on a platter. It was a, a, a one of our writers who now directs her own commercials and stuff. Oh my God, she came up with this whole thing. And I like just shooting those. It's like every department is worked to the ultimate limit. Like the writers have come up with the script. The director has to keep track of everything. The camera department has to keep things locked off. The wardrobe has to dress six characters. I'm speaking to a tennis ball on a on a stand, you know what I mean? And like, it's so fun to do those and so hard and so fun. How long do you think you're going to be doing this for? This being flow? Oh, oh my God. I mean, look, I'm a hundred years old. I am going to be, they're going to have to, it's going to have to be CGI and or like me. Wait, maybe I'm, it could be, remember, do you remember good old Tom? I found my old college ring and I needed some cash. So I took it to Tom and he gave me $300 for it. You come get your money from good old Tom. I want to give it to you. I want you saying good old Tom. Maybe good old Flo. <laughs> good old Tom, who's good old Tom? You know, bring your stuff down to good old Tom's. No, I guess that was Connecticut only or something. Anyway. Connecticut, well, I'm New York. Oh, we had Crazy Eddie. Do you oh, remember? Okay, so, Crazy sure. Eddie. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was going for the old thing, but you know, <laughs> crazy flow. Well, maybe there. I I can imagine an old flow. I can oh imagine you. God. I can imagine you doing this for the rest of your life. But I'm not doing the work. So, what do you think? What would you like? Well, listen. I love who I work with and for. Like, I it, it really is 
lovely. Like it's been 16 years. Like the babies are now off to college and, you know, I, we all know each other's pets. I bring my dog to the set and, and yeah, so it's, um, the job's great. I love it. You know, and, and in the early days, I remember, you know, talking with my manager and stuff. It's just like, okay, like, how do we protect you just being known for one thing? And I'm like, well, look, uh, any job that I had that I booked didn't give me the freedom I have in this one or, or this. I felt, you know, you'd audition, you get the part, you can't believe it. You go and you you say the lines on the show and it's really great and exciting. And then you see it or me, I'm talking about myself and it would be like, wow, that was great. Or that was great, but short. Oh, they cut that out, whatever. And then when I got the commercial, they were keeping the things I liked in. They were keeping the choices that I was excited about in. And so I was like, well, this is the gift. This is this character that I get to play. And it just felt like a really good fit. So keep going forever. So keep Yeah, this is fun. And I love the people I work with. Um, Jim, who plays Jamie. It has been my friend at the Groundlings forever. Um, we actually wrote a sketch about NPR. I was Sarah Vowell and he was Ira Glass and we were doing our show and there was a bank robbery on the bottom floor. And so we were narrating like the bank robbers have told us that to keep, you know, I don't even know. <laughs> Yo, the NPR voice, they make it sound easy. It's not. No, it's hard. And he'd be like, you know, we're being held hostage right now. And I'm beginning to feel a little bit of the, the Stockholm syndrome. Um, <laughs> now, let's talk about the history of the Stockholm syndrome. It dates back to, enter sound effect, moody music. A sheep in a field with a cowbell, <laughs> sure. with an alpine cowbell. Um, <laughs> what was I even saying? What I was saying is, I'm happy, you know, and, and it seems to keep going. And I have always been, you know, make a deal with myself that this is, this goes until it doesn't serve the company anymore. And then don't take it personally, but I would have a nightmare in the early days that I'd be in an airport or something. I'd look at a TV and there would be like a dirty sock puppet and it would say progressive over it. Like I'd been replaced by a very filthy sock puppet and I was like, okay, okay, you know, that's probably just, you know, you're preparing yourself for when this thing, whatever. For when you get replaced by a dirty sock puppet, yeah. By a dirty sock puppet, like with like little holes and little googly eyes on it. And I was just like, okay, no, I get it. I get it. Like having a, having a human being as your spokesperson, that that's expensive and risky and all that. And <laughs> But, you know, so far the sock puppet hasn't arrived. If you could have a tagline for your life as Stephanie Courtney, not as Flo, not as anybody else you've ever played, but your tagline, what would it be? Mm. Help me make one up. I really, I, I've sort of decided that my purpose in this world, what I would like it to be is to take the fear down. That's what I hope to do with anything I do. Just take, so, but that's such a negative way to put it. So it would be, oh God, Stephanie Courtney. Amplify. Amplify the love. Amplify the joy. Wait, uh, if I said accentuate the positive, that's just, I feel like, I feel like that's been said before. Well, that's been sung before. Yes. Would you get sued for it? Are your lawyers going to be all mad? No. Public radio has a blanket license. You want to accentuate the positive? Do you want to just, we can just go with that. We could. We could play the song out. Exactly. <laughs> that's, 
<laughs> um, except I feel like I do find catharsis in playing very cranky people. So what is that? I kind of like, I want to like um, dissect. Is it related to schadenfreude, but like inward in a way, or maybe like inverted schadenfreude? Yeah, embrace the schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> like embrace it all. Embrace it all. Is that right? I got to speak at this college, uh, at my college um, graduation, and my whole speech was about failure is part of it. You're going to go out there and you're going to get a, a job and then maybe it won't work out or whatever. And it's just like, that's okay. That's part of this. Like an improv too. It's like the mistakes have to be accepted, you know? So maybe embrace the unexpected. Fail fast. Fail fast. <laughs> um, Wait, um, fail enthusiastically. Yes, fail enthusiastically. It's great. And on the other side, you have a funny story to tell at your next dinner party, and you're tougher and you're more empathetic. There you go. Thank you. And put on makeup. <laughs> I've asked everything I've planned on, and I know that there's so much more to you than this. But No, there's whole... not. That's the, that's the bottom of the barrel. You're done. <laughs> um, is there anything else? I just want to make any open floor for anything else you want to say, considering, you know, you're in this episode with Paul, and it's talking about being the face of a of a whole business, of a whole product, like anything I've missed. I just want you to make sure that when you hang up the Zoom call, you feel like I got it all off my chest. I want to tell Paul... I just want to give him a standing ovation for the job he did. He was, I mean, I think before him, I don't know a lot of spokespeople that weren't, you know, celebrities or whatever. So um, he probably paved the way for me having a spokesperson job. And I believe we have the same agent, Paul. So I just wanted to thank him and give him props and just tell him he has, he has conducted himself with so much awesomeness and, class and strength and i just give them a lot of a lot of love well stephanie courtney thank you so much for talking with me thank you audacious is always lovingly produced by khalil rahman jessica severin de martinez meg fitzgerald meg dalton and katie talarski at connecticut public radio in hartford if you want to hear more interviews about what it's like being known from tv Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll find episodes featuring a conversation with the zookeeper whose arm was ripped off by a tiger in Tiger King. And you can listen to a whole episode about what it's like winning a new car on The Price is Right, solving the puzzle on the Wheel of Fortune, and not beating a champion on Jeopardy. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf. You can always send an email to me audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.